Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. You may be wondering where I've been for the past few weeks since I release an episode of the podcast once every week. Well, the podcast is going into hiatus until February. This will lighten the load of work that I have to do for a little while. Plus, it will give me time to plan monologue topics and interviews ahead of time for the second season. So this will be the last episode until February 2020. With that out of the way, I'd like to introduce our guest today. He's the co-editor of a new large volume concerning historical Jesus studies called Jesus, Skepticism, and the Problem of History. He's the Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas, and he's written several scholarly and popular books on the historical Jesus. Uh, His name is Dr. Daryl Bach, and Dr. Bach, it is so good to have you on the program today. How have you been? I've been well, and it's good to be with you, and I wish you a great end of the year. You too. Um, So... Let's get into our topic today, which is this book on the historical Jesus. Uh, tell our listeners what this book is mainly about. Obviously, it's about Jesus. It's got Jesus in the title. Jesus is on the cover. But from what perspective? What Jesus and the problem of history and skepticism, what, what, is, what is the major premise of, of the book? Well, we are taking a look at kind of the current state of historical Jesus studies. There's been a lot of discussion in the last couple of decades about historical Jesus questions and particularly um, issues tied to what's called the criteria of authenticity, which are at least one of the ways, uh, was one of the ways that historical Jesus work was assessed. And so we wanted to do a work from an evangelical point of view about um, kind of the current state of the discussion, as well as discuss issues related to method tied to dealing with ancient history, which of course is one of the challenges you have when you're dealing historically with the material out of the Gospels. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I use the I use the criteria all the time as a uh, as a Christian apologist, and I, I use the minimal facts approach that, that was. Um, put forth by Gary Habermas and his many works. And so I, I'm, I use the criteria a lot. So I, when I read the, uh, the summary of the book, I was like, wow, this, this sounds like a book that really um, ties into uh, one of the areas that I study and, and talk about. So um, what, what kind of, um, what kind of audience would you recommend this book to? Is this book a, appropriate for, say, lay people who haven't done much study into the historical Jesus research, or would you say that this is more intermediate or advanced level material? It's probably more intermediate, advanced level material. It certainly would be something pastors who are aware of issues tied to Jesus would be interested in. Uh, A layman who has some background with some of the discussion might be able to appreciate the work, but it really is... um, a state of the discussion work um, and is trying to help people understand that conversation. So if you haven't done much work in historical Jesus 
studies, um, then the book will almost be foreign territory to you. But if you have, and if you're familiar with the apologetics discussion about historical Jesus studies, that kind of thing, then it may be of interest to you. Cool. Um, now, from what I can tell, a large number of essays in the book, uh, you know, they they seem to uh, like various different like various different approaches to the criteria of authenticity. It's not just you know each essay talking about a criteria of authenticity, but like like in chapter three, for example, which is one of Dan, Dan Wallace's essays, he he talks about how the criterion of embarrassment can not only be applied to the gospel records themselves, but also but we can assess just exactly how embarrassing they were through the practice of textual criticism. Uh, that, that you know, he talks about how some of the scribes actually altered some of the manuscripts in an attempt to do away with some of the awkward things they found in the text. Can you talk about some of the content of that chapter? Just give our listeners a little taste of, of what they can expect. Can you like talk about some of Dan Wallace's examples? Well, main thing is um, just dealing with the way in which um, uh, corrections come up in general, um, both in text critical criticism in general, and then part of the argument is how um, the early church would not be responsible for creating certain kinds of details. Um, so, for example, let's deal with the history side of this versus the text critical side. The idea that women would be the first witnesses of the resurrection, which in the culture women had no role uh, as witnesses. You wouldn't take a difficult concept, resurrection, and get it to be substantiated first off by women unless women were really the first witnesses. You wouldn't create that detail. So embarrassment works by saying, um, this is so culturally out of whack, and that's what embarrassment would mean here, so culturally out of whack that this would not be a detail that would be naturally created in order to create a story. It, if the detail is there and it's culturally out of whack, it's because the event was, if you will, culturally out of whack to begin with because you wouldn't insert this as, a, as an example. And the text critical examples work similarly. Um, they would deal with situations in which the correction looks like it's a softening of a problem or an issue or an incongruency with the culture. And if you're asking which way did the switch go to or away from the incongruency, the argument would be it's more likely to have started out incongruent and have a, have a corrector fix it culturally than the other way around. And so, um, so that's how the criterion of embarrassment works. Yeah, um, but but specifically, like what what how to give some examples like in in textual criticism, like what it, like what examples of scribal alterations can kind of indicate that they knew that this was something that was awkward and they didn't really want in the text. Well, um, I mean, there are all kinds of examples in terms of uh, of the way this works. Um, basically. Um, and I'm trying to find one. For example, the Abiathar passage in Mark 2.26, where uh, it says Abiathar was high priest when, uh, when the showbread was eaten. Well, technically speaking, he wasn't the high priest at that time, so you'd be more likely to correct it in the direction of um, Ahimelech than Abiathar. 
But there are also other explanations, literal explanations, for why Abiathar might be originally in the text. And that is you're not actually giving the chronological marker of when uh, Abiathar was the high priest, but you're talking about the section in which Abiathar gets discussed, something like that. So the correction is likely to go in a direction that smooths out a difficulty as opposed to leaving it there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't correct it in the opposite direction. That's the point. And there are uh, numerous examples like that, or at least a handful of examples like that that Dan points out in his chapter. Yeah. Uh, now, I, this isn't really talked about in the book, but I think, I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing about the, the – textual criticism and how it relates to the story of the the woman uh, who was going to be stoned for adultery, a lot of people would be surprised to find out that that, that was probably a later addition to the text, that, that whole narrative. Now, I mean, there are some who's, who would argue that maybe that has some earlier tradition and ascribe, you know, put it in there as he saw fit, or maybe it belonged in another gospel or something, but, it, you know, the... Most most scholars, what what I get the impression of where they stand today is that th this was added in later on, and I think that would I think that would trouble some Christians because they think if if there were alterations to the text, how can we be sure that the that the New Testament we have today is the same New Testament that the apostles wrote? Can you quickly like just yeah. briefly address that concern? You're actually dealing with two separate questions, so let's deal with them one at a time. Uh, the first is, actually, if people will pick up a Bible that has no, any kinds of notes in it to the side or anything, or any kind of special notation, you'll recognize bracketing uh, of that text, which is a signal that it is textually uncertain. In other words, that the better manuscripts that we um, tend to trust don't have this text. Um, and, and then if you pull that text out, the narrative sequence actually makes sense without it. So it actually interrupts a scene uh, that is going on in John 7 and in John 8. And then a third feature is that in the textual manuscripts that we have, this event is located in a couple of positions. So, um, and not even in the same gospel. So it, it appears to be a piece of floating Jesus tradition, I even think it's an authentic event, um, that has been placed in John, and that's where it ended up canonically, even though it probably did not have that original location in the Gospel of John. So that's your first question, the detail with regard to that event. As to how about being able to trust what our Bible gives us, this isn't the only text that does this. We have a longer ending of Mark, it has a similar kind of history associated with it. Does Mark end at verse 8? Does it end at verse 9? Or does it go all the way to verse 20? And, uh, and I, I think the answer to that question is, is that what we have in our overall manuscript tradition is what I like to call the text plus. We have what was originally written plus all the corrections and additions and alterations that have been made over time. I like to say we have 105% of the text, and one of the goals of text criticism is to get us down to the 100, proper 100%. In almost all cases, we know what that is, and then there's a handful of things, maybe 1% of the total, where there's a little bit of uncertainty. And again, if you have a very good Bible, it will mark those differences. It will mark those differences um, 
either with a note in the in the margin that says or, or in some cases will give you a little more detail. Um, if you have the Net Bible, it'll discuss all of them. None of those differences impacts a single doctrine, a core doctrine of the faith. It's just a question of how many verses teach that particular point that ends up being up for grabs as a result of some of these differences. So they're there, they're real, they're part of the history of the transmission of the text, but in the end, they don't impact the overall teaching of what Christianity is about one whit. Yeah, and what a point I often bring up is that, you know, the reason we know that the alterations are there is because we do have the text preserved for us, and it it's so, you know, we got 5,000 Greek manuscripts alone, and we've got, um, I can't remember how many Latin uh, trans, uh, manuscripts. Um, and so textual critics, you know, they, they compare these these texts with each other. Some are whole codexes. Some are just a little, you know, maybe a page or two, just, just a portion. Um, and so when they do that, the additions the stick out like a sore thumb because they're like, hey, wait a minute. We've got all these early texts here, and we got some texts over here. But we've got this verse and only, you know, these texts dating from this later period here. Yeah, that's generally what, of course, what's happened is as texts got copied and as texts wore out, okay, younger texts replaced them. So the reason we have so few very early texts, other than their distance from us, is the fact that later texts replaced the earlier texts as they were being copied, because you'd make the copy because your older text was wearing down. And so um, so this explains kind of the, the sequencing of the manuscripts that we have. Plus, as the church, you know, it became safer to be a part of the church, et cetera. More copies could be made. More copies could be stored. Fewer copies were destroyed, that kind of thing. So that explains why our manuscript base has fewer earlier texts but much more late, later texts as we move on in time, plus we've just got less distance to cover. Um, so that explains kind of the manuscript pool that we have. But we know which texts uh, are older and, in general, which ones we think are more trustworthy. And that's why in some notes you get in a study Bible, it will say, in the earlier manuscripts read or the best manuscripts read, they might word it one way or the other, and then they'll tell you what the reading is, which is producing the difference, say, between more modern translations and some King James translations, for example, which tended to be based on later manuscripts, many, much fewer later manuscripts, by the way. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get into this uh, manuscript thing a little bit because this is an apologetics podcast, and I, I can't tell you how many atheists and agnostics and Muslims— Muslims, I mean, that's, that's part of their theology that this, oh, the Bible is just so corrupted, but, you know, that's why we need the Quran to correct, uh, you know, what what has been lost. The God's word has been lost to us, and we need to have it uh, restored. And and so, you know, I know that in, like, in scholarly circles, in New Testaments, you know, it's pretty much well known that the New Testament hasn't been utterly um utterly corrupted to the point where it looks like nothing the original author said. But, you know, in lay circles, which is, you know, the, the people who are going to be listening to this podcast, they, you know, in, in lay circles where I, I 
venture. This this kind of stuff is being thrown out all the time. No, you're right, and uh, and and it it really first of all the way Muslims try and handle the corruption of the text is it's being substantially corrupt and completely. Uh, is that is a complete denial of the quality of the manuscript evidence that we actually do have, which doesn't suffer from this, uh, from the, the differences that we've talked about, as I said, don't impact the uh, core doctrines of Christianity one bit. It's just a question of how many passages teach that idea. You know, a Muslim comes along and says, well, the text is completely corrupt. You can't trust it at all, etc. That's not true in the least. So, um, so that's a complete misrepresentation of what we have uh, in the manuscript tradition. Uh, and what you want to do is, when you're working with these texts, is to work with these manuscripts. And then, like I say, in most cases, we know what the text should be. It's, it's only a handful of places where we don't know what the text should be. It's a little bit like getting emails where someone's put in a typo and you have context, and you read it, and you go, well, I know that's a typo, but I also know what that means. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I was talking to someone on Messenger, and I typed in the same sentence like three or four times, and it came out with a different error each and every time. And I was like, you know what? If someone were to compare what, what I actually said here, they would they would understand what I'm saying. Uh, I can't remember what it was. It was and and I even remember thinking, why did it autocorrect to that? <laughs> well, I, I complain about autocorrect and call it auto-miscorrect. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, anyway, I, I can I can hear, like, the, especially, like, the Internet infidel crowd, like, especially, like, you know, the Matt Dillahunty types, they, they can say, oh, well, you know, pretty much all of the academics who contributed to this work are Christians or evangelicals, and they're even Christian apologists. So this is like a, you know, a really biased work. How, how would you respond to skeptics who would, you know, would make would lodge this accusation against the book? Well, some of the people who are writing did not grow up in Christian homes and became Christians over time because as they looked at some of this and engaged with some of this, they became uh, convinced that the text was able to be trusted, and so. Um, I tell people who make that kind of an argument is look at the kind of argumentation that we're making. Look at the case that we're making. Look at the warrants and supports that were given. Most of these are things that people would recognize if, that, if they were studying a discipline regardless of their theological position. They would recognize at least the, the merits and the plausibility of what's being put forward. So, so I don't think the claim of bias, you know, it does work both ways after all. I don't think the claim of bias actually helps us in this particular conversation. The issue is always going to be what kind of evidence is put forward and what's the basis for that evidence. And does that evidence have, you know, merit on its own terms? And, of course, that's what we're trying to do with all the detail work, with all the footnotes that you see and that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, bias, that, that definitely can work both both ways, like— you know, I, I recommend like a Christian source, uh, and they're like, oh, I can't, oh, that's a Christian source. Give me an atheist source. I'm like, the atheist is, is biased too. It's well, just, and, my, it's, and my point is when the Bible, you know, for example, the Bible claims that God was at work and was doing miracles. Well, the moment you're an atheist, 
you automatically dismiss what it says, regardless of what its testimony is. And you haven't done that on the basis of any evidence. You've done that on the basis of a presupposition and a bias. The Bible is not uh, well disposed to have people who don't think that God could exist and do something um, assess its content because uh, its content speaks about an act of God. So that's clear that that bias makes a big difference both directions, because in one case, you're open to what the testimony is in the text, and the other, you've automatically closed the question before you even got there. Right, right. And plus, you know, if anybody doubts anything that any of the authors say, you know, it's heavily footnoted. The sources are cited. They can go ch check this stuff out for themselves. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's, that's why, the point. That's yeah, the point that's of why, producing a scholarly work. Yeah, and that's why I heavily footnote all of my writings, my blog posts and books, especially because I'm not a scholar myself. I'm a layman, so I have to stand on the shoulders of giants. So if I make a scientific claim and someone's like, well, you're not a scientist, well, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not just pulling this out of my hat. I'm getting this from Stephen Hawking or Michio Kaku, you know, so, you know, go, go take it with them. So if anybody, you know, that's, you know, you, we have sources and you can check out our sources. Exactly right, and that's why you, that's why you put that material in there so people can run down what it is that you're talking about. So um, now, a lot of people, pretty much, I think anyone who has even casually studied resurrection apologetics uh, know about the famous Michael Icona, and he has an essay in this book in chapter twelve. Can you give our listeners a taste of what his essay is about? What's you know what he's talking about there? Well, again, what we're trying to do here is to take on different aspects of what's going on. So he's dealing with, um, with what he calls critical realism, which is a philosophical way to approach the text and to say, um, on the one hand, we think there's a real world out there. There's a real world that we can study. There's a real world that we can talk about historically. Not everything is a social construct that's made up in people's minds, that kind of thing. And the critical part of it means the ability to be self-critical about what it is, about the sources that you use and the way you're interacting with them. And then he goes through and just talks about how to think through the way in which evidence uh, is assessed at a historical level. And so he does that and applies some of that argumentation, not just to uh, the resurrection, but then he also um, constructs some other kinds of examples to think through where you use that kind of evidence to see what's going on and to make sense out of it. And so it's, it's a careful look at how um, an argument for resurrection can be made plausibly on a historical basis and try and come to a conclusion that doesn't say, well, history can't assess this as much as saying, no, there's a way to say that a conclusion that Jesus was raised from the dead is historically plausible and defensible. Yeah, I was I was uh, just I was watching one of Inspiring Philosophy. Um, actually, I watched the entire series. Uh, the YouTuber Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy has a whole series on Jesus's resurrection, and he addressed the argument that Bart Ehrman made, and he played a clip of his debate where he said, "You know, history can't assess uh, miracle claims. You know, we can't we can't say anything about it." And he just totally tore that down. Is that that's is that's basically what? Uh, Mike is doing in that essay, right? He's saying, yeah, we can, we, are, we can 
Yes, there, there. I mean, there really are three historical positions. One is called just straight naturalism that that rules God out from acting to begin with. Then there's what's called methodological naturalism, which some people actually hold with regard to history, and it basically argues history is incapable of making an assessment about whether God has acted or not. It's just beyond what history is able to do. So even though you might be open to it, you might even say God acted, that would be viewed as a theological statement, but it's not a statement you can prove historically. Now, one of the questions that you have is how do you use the word prove when you're talking about historical? Because you can't prove it like you can a science experiment where you can recreate it and show it's 100% certain. What the case that you're making is a is a plausibility case or a probability case. This is more probable than the other explanations, that kind of thing. That's how historical proof often works. And the re- and then the third view is this critical realism that I was talking about, which is, no, there's a way to make this case. You don't rule out the ability of history to make the kinds of judgments about God's activity um, by definition. You pursue that as an option because witnesses are trying to say, that something here is going on, and in some cases are offering claims about how they they know that, that kind of thing. And so Lacona's chapter is trying to walk you through that option with some sense of what it is that he's talking about and, and how you can make those kinds of assessments. Nice. So um, I, um, let's see. Where where can uh, oh now I, I remember what <laughs> I forgot what I was going to ask first now I remember um, how has how have um, critics received this work like those who are not really keen on uh, uh, historical approaches that employ the criteria of authenticity I was I was talking to an atheist the other day who said you know criteria of authenticity approaches they're just total bunk like how have people who are not really keen on that how have they uh, what kind of critical feedback have you received? Well, the book is just out, so there hasn't been any time for the feedback to come yet. I, I, you know, there is a discussion. This is why we wrote the book in part. There is a discussion by some, some who are even committed to a historical Jesus approach, that argue that the criteria are flawed in one way or another, and they're certainly not perfect. They are built on a kind of logic uh, that is not uh, foolproof in one sense. So, for example, multiple attestation, which is one of the criteria, the idea that the more you see a theme or an idea across the various strands of independent tradition that are feeding into what the Gospels are. So this would be in the normal construction, Mark, the teaching that's shared between Matthew and Luke, the unique Matthew material, the unique Luke material, the unique Johannine material, stuff that shows up in the epistles. Those would be your different sources. Well, the more a theme runs across those, as opposed to being isolated in one of them, the idea is the more widespread it shows itself to be, and the more likely it is to be early in the tradition and thus have a good um, plausibility for being likely, uh, being authentic. That's that's the premise behind that criterion. Now, it's not perfect, uh, but it is a plausibility argument that that operates. Uh, Another one is um, something that's in the Aramaic tradition is more likely to be early than late because the church became more Greek as time moved on, that kind of thing. But that's not airtight because Jesus isn't the only one who spoke Aramaic, you know, that kind of thing. So these criteria are not 
perfect, but they do help you. And they're all based on logic. Another one is dissimilarity, which doesn't apply very often, but when it does, it's valuable. It's the idea that uh, what Jesus is teaching is not like what Judaism taught, and what Jesus is teaching is not like what the early church ended up teaching. So if it's completely different on both ends, that's got to be Jesus. Now, that actually rarely um, uh, rarely applies, but when it does, you know you've got something good. In fact, that one is so strict that other people will state it with a little more subtlety. They'll say, not quite like Judaism and not quite like the early church, and especially if it looks like it's something that's in transition between those two, that's likely to be Jesus as well. Again, a logical kind of position, uh, but not foolproof. So the more criteria you have that can work, um, you know, then the stronger the case is for the particular passage in question. Embarrassment we've already talked about, that's a strictly logical way of looking at the way in which you're thinking about, well, if the alternative is these stories were created, would it have been created in this way with this emphasis, given what we have in the story? And if the answer to that question is no, you wouldn't create a detail like that. That doesn't make any sense. Then you go, well, then it must be part of the real event. Yeah, I was I was um I was thinking about the criteria the other day and I was thinking like, you know, they are pretty much just logical arguments for why we should believe that this is, you know, how it went down cuz like with multiple attestation, you know, like what are the odds that all these different people, you got like three or four different sources that are not working together, they'd all independently make up the same lie. And of course, you know, when people lie, they make themselves look good. They don't make themselves look bad. So why would, for example, why would the, <laughs> either either the later church or uh, Mark, if you accept the traditional authorship of the Gospels, you know, whoever wrote the Gospels, they obviously respected the disciples. And yet, at one point, when Jesus predicted his death, he, uh, you know, Peter was like, "No, we we won't let this happen, Lord." And Jesus was like, "Get behind me, Satan." Uh, Okay, why why would they have why would they have Jesus why would they make up Jesus calling Peter Satan or at least it looks like he's calling him yeah, Satan? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a classic example of the type of thing. And remember that sometimes it isn't it isn't just the idea of making up a lie; it's making up the details in an event and some or something like that. And if it if it isn't culturally congruent, it wouldn't be the way you would normally make it up, if you will. And so that's oftentimes an argument for what's going on in terms of uh, in, in terms of arguing for the authenticity. So these criteria have a logic that are that's associated with them. Again, they're not airtight, they're not perfect. But the flip side of the question is if you take the criteria out of the conversation, then the question becomes, so on what basis are you going to make an assessment for what's going on, you know, other than you know, someone's emotional feel about what's going on or whatever. Now, you can do cultural background and cultural uh, fits and things like that. I mean, there are other things to use. And one of the things we do in the book is to show what some of those other things are as well. But obviously, the more tools you have to assess what's going on in the ancient world, given your distance from the events, the fact that you're only dealing with the select portion of witness in comparison to, you know, what existed at the time originally and that kind of thing, any tool that you can use is going to be helpful to you. 
Yeah, I agree. One of my favorite examples of embarrassment is when I'm is when I'm giving a presentation. Those who've read my blog posts on the resurrection or my book, My Redeemer Lives, or or even if they just listen to the podcast series I did this past year on the resurrection, uh, they know that when I argue for Paul's postmortem appearance, I, I do it at a, a two ends. I argue he was a persecutor. Then he became a Christian, and he suffered, and he died for it, and I give the, the documentation for that, and I'm like, something happened in the middle here. What was it? Well, Paul said he experienced seeing Jesus, and I argue for that first plank, that first bookend, that he was a persecutor by pointing out that Paul admits it in several of his epistles, and I say that for Paul to to make up uh, the you know, that saying that he, he tried to destroy the church of God when he really didn't, that would be like me writing a letter to my friend and, and lying about a drug abuse problem that I, that I never really had. You know, oh, I, I, I really, I'm really, I'm addicted to cocaine, man, but I've never done cocaine in my life. Just doesn't make any sense. It's, it makes, it paints me in a bad light and it's not true. Well, even more than that, it, be, it it also doesn't make sense in terms of people who might have pushed back on Paul, because if he claimed to be something that he wasn't and claimed to have a role in the early Judaism that he didn't have, and not only that, he needed to have some understanding about what the church was preaching to react against it, and then also to process the vision that he had of Jesus, all that had to be in place for him to convert. And that conversion happened very close on top of the events in Jerusalem. He was working out of Jerusalem. He knew what was going on in Jerusalem. All of that is one of the key ways we know that there is uh, that there is a very early line of tradition base that literally is on top of the events of what happened with Jesus in Jerusalem. So it's been great having you on the show, Daryl. Um, tell Tell uh, listeners where they can buy the book and what formats it's in. Well, uh, you know, I actually don't know if it's in the Kindle, Kindle format. I know it's in a paperback. I, you, you know, Amazon is any way to get it. You can order it from there any Christian stores that still exist where you can go in and walk in and buy buy books. That's all very possible to do. So, um, uh, so yeah, so it's it's a you can get it in a, in any standard way you would get any book. But you probably the easiest thing to do is either a very good Christian bookstore to order it through. Or uh, or over Amazon. Yeah. Now, for the record, I was not paid by this company to say this, but I I think ChristianBook.com is a really really good place to to buy Christian books. It's a it's an online store, and they've got just about every everything you can imagine in apologetics, theology, devotionals, Bibles. Um, they even got they even have like apparels, like hats with Bible verses on them. They've they've got everything, so you could probably find. Uh, Jesus' skepticism and the problem of history on that website as well, and and they they've they've got it cheaper than the other place. I mean, their slogan is "Everything Christian for Less," and they they mean it. So um, before we cut it off, and uh, not only for this week but also for this year, uh, do you have any speaking engagements in the near future that our listeners may want to attend? I mean, I'm literally all over the place. So that's, and a lot of it is uh, our private conference events. I mean, I am in, I'm in, I'm in Germany. (laughs) This one, I'm in Germany in late February. I'm in Romania in March. Um, uh, I will be in Atlanta the second week, the first week of January, but that's for a private conference. 
Um, so there are a variety of speaking engages, but not, gen I'm not aware of any church uh, speaking that I'm doing in the spring that uh, that would be outside the Dallas area. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. You can get the book Jesus, Skepticism, and the Problem of History, edited by Ed Komazuski and Daryl Bach. And uh, you can get it on Amazon, probably ChristianBook.com. Just go Google it. You'll you'll find it somewhere. Um, and thank you for uh, supporting me, my patrons, Kevin Walker, Jordan Apodaca. Uh, um, you've, you guys have just been really great. This ministry can go so much farther with your funding. Um, and if you want to support Cerebral Faith, uh, my computer is getting really old, and I'm afraid it's going to die soon. So if you could, you can support Cerebral Faith and uh, go to patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith, and maybe we can work to get a new computer because this one's almost six years old. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I will see you again in February 2020. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's.